So I feel like I need to at least let you know, and I've had some of these conversations already, and I'm sure I'm going to have a few more in the lobby afterwards, but I had an, a visit to urgent care this last Thursday. And uh, before I tell you what happened, I just need to preface, it's not a good story. Like, I wish it was a better story. I wish it was a little bit more epic and exciting, but it's not. Thursday night, uh, my five-year-old daughter and I were playing basketball right out here in the church parking lot, and I forgot how to walk, apparently, and tripped fell, hit the curb, and then went to urgent care, and they glued me all up and like sent me on my way. Uh, so here's, the, here's what's been super great, though, especially that happened late Thursday night, Friday, Saturday, and even today. I'll talk with people, meet with people, and say, hey, Brian, how's it? Oh, what happened to your face? And then from that, I proceed to tell the not-so-exciting story about my five-year-old pushing me on the playground. And from that, though, this has been the best part is then those of you I've had conversations with, almost every single person is like, yep, yep, I have a story like that. And they begin to tell me, you begin to tell me your story of tripping, falling, trying to do something that you could do in a younger age, but can't do now. And it was super helpful, like truly from the bottom of my heart, thank you for telling me your terrible stories of injuries, because I feel so much better about myself now. I feel great because you're able to look at me and say, ah, yes, that happens to all of us. Been there, done that. And I find comfort in your pain. So thank you. We find that though, don't we, right? When, when we're going through something difficult, when somebody's able to look back at you and say, ah, I get it. I've been through that too. It, 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 there's something in you that gives you comfort. When somebody else explains and is able to empathize with you based on their situation that matches up with yours, that means so much. That one phrase of, I understand, I get it, I've been there, provides comfort for us when we go through difficult times. That's the whole point of what we've been talking about this entire month of August is he gets us. Jesus understands us. He doesn't just know us. He gets us. He's walked where we've walked. He's gone through what we have and will go through. He doesn't just know about us. He knows what it's like to walk in our own shoes. Hebrews chapter four tells us just that. Hebrews four verse 12 says, or verse 14 says, so then since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest, high priest, Jesus, he, look, he understands our what? What's scripture say? He understands our what? Our weaknesses. He, everything that makes us weak, he understands. Look why. For he faced all of the same testings we do. Yet he did not sin. So every weakness we have, every difficulty we will and have gone through, Jesus already gets it. He understands because he's gone through all of it, yet he did it perfectly. He did not sin. So what does that do for us? We just said that gives us comfort. When somebody else can, can empathize with us, that comforts us. The same thing happens here in verse 16. So because of that, let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive mercy, his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. We find comfort, we find grace, we find mercy, and we most certainly find help. He gets us. He doesn't just know us, he gets us. That word weakness there, it's a very general word and it can be applied in a lot of different ways, but it's pointing to our personal weaknesses, how frail we are as people, right? When I think of how frail we are and how weak we are, 
maybe, you might disagree, but I think one of the biggest weaknesses we have, what makes us so frail is how easily we get hurt. Not necessarily on the playground, that's physical hurt. I'm talking that emotional hurt. It's the hurt that we, we experience when somebody insults us, that kind of hurt. It's the hurt we experience when we walk through rejection. It's how easily we get hurt when someone says something against us, when we are wronged in some form or fashion, when people doubt us, when you feel dismissed and written off. That's the kind of hurt I think that makes us so weak and so frail because those hurts go deep. And I would even say those types of hurts, the hurts of rejection, of dismissal, of doubts, of insults, I think those types of hurts take longer to heal than our physical wounds because those hurts go deep and they tend to linger and they impact our lives. So when we talk about Jesus understanding our weaknesses, it's not just he's gone through hardships as well. He's experienced physical pain like we have. Yes, but he's also experienced the pain of insults. He's experienced rejection. He's experienced people doubting him and dismissing him, writing him off. Jesus has experienced rejection as well. So as we go through today's story, that's what we're gonna see. We're gonna see that Jesus has walked through all of that, that kind of hurt, but he did it perfectly. So before we jump into that story, I want you to just mentally picture, and, and it's probably gonna be a little different for each of us, how you react in those hurtful moments. So when somebody insults you, when you receive a rejection, when you're doubted or dismissed or written off, insulted, what is kind of the natural tendency for each of you? Let me give you a few examples. This might be you, it might not. But some of you here, you just get real angry and you begin to want to retaliate and your response is a, well, oh yeah. And so then you're ready to go to battle with this person because of what they've thrown at you, you're ready to throw it right back. Some of you go into debate and argument mode. You're gonna prove that you're right and that they are wrong. So you begin to debate and argue. Some of you will change and you're looking, you're kind of the people pleaser of the group. And you're like, no, 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 I didn't mean it that way. Like, I'm, I'm really sorry. And, and you start to try to like win their approval by pleasing them, even if it means changing what you say. Some of you just refuse to be around tension and conflict altogether. So you just begin to withdraw and retreat into the background. And we're gonna pretend like this never happened. And then you begin to avoid those people because you don't wanna bring up tension and conflict. And what are they gonna think? And what are they gonna say? There's probably a hundred other ways that you would respond, but begin to identify, ooh, when I'm pushed, when I'm insulted, when I deal with rejection, here's how I want to handle it. We all know the phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I hope you all know that's a complete lie, right? We agree with that. Sticks and stones most certainly hurt. Oh, but the wounds of others cut deep. So that's what we're gonna look at. We're gonna see how Jesus navigated not just a difficult situation, but how he navigated the difficulties of rejection, insults, doubts, and dismissals. Mark chapter six is where we're gonna find this story starting in verse one. If you've got a Bible, have it open or use the YouVersion app. If you don't have a Bible, man, make sure you grab one. Best gift that I could give you. There's a bunch of Bibles out in the lobby. Grab one, write your name in it, use it, open it during the week and bring it with you on Sundays. Mark chapter six, verse one, here's the story as it begins to unfold. Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. So this is where he grew up. 
This is where his friends and his family are. This is where people uh, knew him from an early age, neighbors. He's very familiar with the folks in Nazareth and they would be very familiar with him. So with his disciples, he headed back to his hometown. Verse two, the next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue and many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? So here's Jesus coming back and he doesn't act like the Jesus they remember. Something has changed. He's different. And all of a sudden he has power to heal and he's speaking with authority through the scriptures and he's teaching as a rabbi and everybody is that word amazed. He's very different from who they remember him to be, but that's about to shift. They were amazed, but notice how the tone changes. They go from amazed to be offended. Verse three. Then they scoffed. They went from amazed to now scoffing and muttering about him. They scoffed and said, he's just a carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph, Judas and Simon, and his sisters live right here among us. And they were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Didn't just not believe in him. They refused to believe in him because of who we know or what we knew of Jesus. And we grew up with this Jesus and he's just a carpenter. Like we know his mom, we know his brothers, we know his sister, his sisters are here with us today. He's just that Jesus. There's no way that he can claim to be the son of God. There's no way he can claim to be the Messiah. I mean, those are strong words to refuse to believe and to be deeply offended. I think what happened here is something that happens pretty, I think it's pretty common for us today, especially when we experience a change in our life, a life change when, when the Holy Spirit moves into our heart, is people that know us know enough about us where they think they know everything. And I think that's what happened here. The people that were in Jesus's hometown, they knew enough about Jesus to assume they knew everything about Jesus to the point of, well, we know who you are. And the what you're and what you're proclaiming now and who you're proclaiming to be doesn't match. So we know enough about you, Jesus, to make assumptions about everything. So how dare you claim to be different now? So let me just say this, because I think we can fall into the trap as the people of Nazareth did. We make assumptions about people. And that's on some level, I mean, that's just human. That makes us people, that we're going to make some assumptions. So let me just say this. If you are going to make an assumption about someone else, assume you don't know everything. Start there with that assumption. That when you see somebody changed, assume you don't know everything. Assume you don't know the entire story. Assume you don't know where they're coming from. Assume you don't know everything. If you're gonna make an assumption, start by assuming you don't know everything. Because again, the friends, the family, the neighbors of Jesus, they knew enough and assumed they knew everything. So here's how Jesus responded. Verse four, then Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. Verse five, and because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. I love that that sounds like such a minimal thing. He can't do any miracles. I mean, he still healed a few people and did a couple miracles, but not as much as we might think. Like that's still a big deal. But for Jesus, it's not as much as maybe he would have wanted and not as much as we would maybe have expected as we would see in other stories. But he wasn't able to do as much, but notice he still did some. 
He continued to do what's right. We'll talk about that in a minute. Verse six, and he was amazed. They started out being amazed, and I love the, the word usage of amazed coming back to it. And he was amazed at their unbelief. He was amazed at their refusal to believe. So Jesus knows what it's like to not be liked. Jesus knows what it's like to experience rejection and experience insults, to have people dismiss and to write somebody off. He knows what it's like. And I know all of us on some different levels in some different relationships and environments, we've experienced those same things. Rejection and insults, doubts, dismissals, being written off. So again, I asked you earlier, we all have a tendency to respond in some way. We either start getting into argument, debate, fight mode. We either get really passive. We want to prove ourselves and prove that they're wrong and we're right. Whatever the, whatever the case may be for you, I want us to look at how Jesus navigated, not just the difficult situation, but the difficulties of this kind of hurt as well. Because as we read in Hebrews, whatever Jesus walked through, he did without sin and he did perfectly. So to do that, let's pay attention to how Jesus was insulted. How did the people of Nazareth insult Jesus? Doesn't really sound maybe like an insult, but you can see in context how it would be. They use those two words, that phrase, he's just. He's just a carpenter. He's just the son of Mary. He's just the brother of these siblings. See that phrase, he's just, it is a phrase of limitation meaning they're minimizing Jesus's abilities and capabilities by saying, well, he's just, they're putting a ceiling on Jesus. Maybe you've experienced that. You can't do that because you're just, and they're putting, people will put a ceiling on you, say, you can't do anything more than that. You'll never amount to anything more than that because you're just, and then fill in the blanket is a phrase of limitation. So the people of Nazareth were minimizing Jesus and putting a lid on what they felt Jesus would be able to do and who he would be able to be. Notice the words that they use to define who Jesus is. Because now we're talking identity. He's just a carpenter. That's all he is. His identity is wrapped up in being a carpenter. He's the son of Mary. Like that's his family. Like they're sitting right there. That's who he is. And you've got the voice of all these people speaking that to Jesus. You're just a carpenter. You're just the son of Mary. You're just. And oftentimes we take what people say about us to heart, and maybe we even hold on to it just a little bit more than we should. So he has that voice he's got to listen to. But then there's another voice that Jesus listens to. And if you go back with me, just flip over a few pages, Mark chapter one. Jesus hears another voice. Somebody else is going to tell Jesus what they think of him and who they think he is. Mark chapter one, starting in verse 10, this is when Jesus is baptized. And when he comes out of the water, here's what happens. Verse 10, as Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. So as he's getting baptized, he comes back out of the water, verse 11, and a voice came from heaven, quote, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Whose voice is that? It's the voice of God, his heavenly father. So now Jesus has two voices he has to listen to. Which one is he gonna hold on to? One voice is a group of people saying, you're just a carpenter, you're just the son of Mary, you're just, and you're never gonna be anything more than that. Another voice is the voice of God saying, you are my son whom I love. 
and who I am pleased with. Two voices, both speaking into who Jesus is, and Jesus has to decide which voice am I going to truly hold on to? Which voice am I going to allow to sink deep? We know he chooses, obviously, the voice of his father because he calls himself a prophet. And Jesus' response, he says, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his hometown. He goes on. And there, that's not, a, that's not a word to describe Jesus that he gave himself. It's because of who God has already said he is. See, Jesus didn't allow other people to determine who he was by what they said. Even Jesus didn't allow his identity to come from who he necessarily felt like being. Sometimes we get stuck there. Nah, don't listen to what anybody else says. Just be you. And I'm like, no. <laughs> no, it's, it's, yes, don't listen to other people. But I would say don't even listen to yourself and just be who you want to be. It's be who God wants you to be. Who does God desire you to be? Who is God calling you to be? Who does God say you are? Jesus listened to who God said he was not himself and not anybody else. That's where he gained who he was and his identity. So for us, who are we? Not what other people say about us, not what you think about yourself. Who does God say you are and who does he see us to be? First John chapter three tells us exactly who we are to God. First John chapter three, verse one. See how very much our father loves us. Here it is for he calls us his children, and that is what we are. You are a child of God. You are his sons, you are his daughters. He views you as his child. He loves you like a child. He's pleased with you like a child. He chases after you and pursues you, gives you grace and mercy and forgiveness like a father would give their son or daughter. You are a child of God. We're told it goes on, but the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we are God's children because they don't know him. In other words, it would be great if we got that affirmation all the time. Remember, you're a child of God. Remember, you're one of God's kids. But when we walk into the world and we're around people that don't know God, they will not see you as a child of God. They have no context. They have no language for that. So at least hear it from me, hear it from 1 John today, that you are a child of God of God. And you have to remember who you truly are, not what other people say about you, not who they think you are, not who you think you are and who you want to be, but who God says you are, how he sees you. And when you hold on to that, that identity changes how we walk. It changes how we talk. It changes how we act. Being a dad of young kids and being a pastor has its perks for my family. It also makes for some interesting conversations at home at times, especially around the topic of movies and shows. So when we're doing like a movie night, again, being a dad, but also a pastor, I'm always looking for biblical truths and principles to pull out of everything that we watch. My kids love me for that. Not really. It's interesting watching a movie with a pastor, uh, but that's the dealt they got. That's the hand they got dealt. So it is what it is. So anyway, uh, we were we were watching the Lion King one time, and there's this epic part in Lion King where Simba has already kind of run off. He's done his own thing, the whole Akuna Matata deal. But then his father Mufasa appears to him. And you've probably seen this epic, iconic scene. You know what I'm talking about at this part? And Mufasa appears to Simba. And again, a Simba has been running away all because of a past mistake. 
this past mistake that Simba allowed him to define himself as. In fact, he truly ran away because he was worried about what other people would think. If you remember the movie, remember what Scar said? <gasps> Simba, what would your mother say? And Simba freaks out and runs away, never comes back. Some of you need to go and refresh in your Lion King just a little bit. There's a lot of theology in Lion King, believe it or not. And my kids are rolling their eyes as I tell this right now. So anyway, so Simba sees his dad and Mufasa appears and Simba's just distraught. He's lost. He doesn't know who he is anymore. And Mufasa has one fact, one phrase of truth he wants to share with his son. Mufasa looks at Simba and says, Simba, remember who you are. You are my son, the one true king Remember who you are. Now, James Earl Jones does a much better job of that than I ever could. <laughs> but it's in that moment, I looked over at my kids, my three kids, and the movie's been paused at this point, and I'm like, that's how me and mom feel about you. No matter what you do, and no matter what mistakes you'll make, we will always love you. We will always be your parents and you'll always be our kids. And even more so, God loves you even more than we ever could. And you are his. And like, can we finish the movie now? <laughs> Hit play, dad. We get it. Got it. You love us. God loves us. Move on. We've heard it. But man, that's such an important truth to remember who you are. Well, what am I supposed to do? And how am I supposed to act? Remember who you are. There's not always instructions, but there is the truth. Remember that you are a child of God. So when you're insulted, remember that you're a child of God. When you're rejected, remember that you are a child of God. When you're dismissed and written off, remember that you are a child of God. When you are hurt, remember that you are a child of God and he loves you and he is pleased with you. Verse six is where we left off. There's actually a second part to verse six. So the first part we see, how did Jesus navigate hurt? Well, he navigated it by remembering who he truly is according to God, not himself and not anybody else. So verse six, we left it and he was amazed at their unbelief. But look at the next line, the very next sentence, we're told, then Jesus went from village to village teaching the people. Now that's a little surprising after Jesus just experienced rejection and insults and being dismissed and doubted. Jesus, just pack up and, and go. Like why even keep doing this mission? Nobody's listening, nobody seems to care, nobody is believing, but Jesus stayed true to the calling that God had given him. Jesus remained obedient consistently and not listening to everybody else, but listening to the calling of his heavenly father. In the church Christian world, churchy Christian world, we call that faithfulness. Consistent obedience and following God. That's faithfulness. And that's what Jesus shows here. He went from village to village teaching the people. He kept doing what God called him to do. He remained faithful because of his consistent obedience. But here's just like a question. Was Jesus successful in this? Because a lot of times we would determine success in this story at least. Well, how many people believed in Jesus after he taught? How many people were healed after Jesus showed up? Because we were told, not, not many. So by all of our metrics, by all of our standards, we would look at this story and say, nope, Jesus wasn't very successful. And if we're not careful, we will start to use the wrong metrics in determining our success in life and in following Jesus. So let's get on the same page. Let's reset 
how we view and define and describe success in following Jesus. Let me say it this way. If you base success on people's responses and not on obedience to God, it's performance, not faithfulness. Let that sink in just for a second. If success is based on people's applause rather than just consistent obedience, it is performance, it is not faithfulness. Followers of Jesus, we are not called to live a life of performance. We do not live for the applause of other people or the booze of other people. We follow him consistently and with faithfulness. Jesus did not get a lot of applause in this story, but was he successful? Absolutely, absolutely, because he remained faithful to who God said he would be and what he was supposed to do. That is what we do. Even when we're hurt, we have consistent obedience and we continue to follow him with faithfulness. Galatians chapter one, verse 10. This is a great one. You gotta memorize this one. Galatians chapter one, verse 10, Paul starts and says, obviously, like this is something we all should know. Obviously, I'm not trying to please other people. I'm not trying to win the approval of other people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. Obviously, I'm not trying to make everybody like me. I'm not living for the applause and the approval of other people Obviously, And if you know anything about Paul, if you've studied him, if not highly recommended, great study on a great follower of Jesus, not perfect by any means, but a great follower of Christ. But he did not have a lot of applause. He got a lot of booze. Did that make him successful? What made him successful was this. He was aiming to please God. So go back. If we truly believe in our hearts that we are a child of God, if we hold on to that as who we are, who do we aim to please? Who are we living our life for then? Not rhetorical, talk to me. God, yes, yes. Just like a son or a daughter would, would want to find approval from a parent, as a child of God, we're not aiming to please everybody else or anybody else. We're aiming to please our heavenly father and only him. So we keep moving. We keep going with faithfulness, consistent obedience in who we are and who God calls us to be. Now, if we look back over this, just to quickly recap, when we look back over Jesus and how he responded and dealt with the hurt of insults and rejection and dismissal, again, go back to how, you are t how you're kind of wired to respond back. Because we don't see those in Jesus. Jesus doesn't beg for their approval. He doesn't say, no, 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 you really need to believe me. Like, trust me, this is for your own good. Jesus doesn't change his message just to win them over. Oh, sorry, was that a little offensive? My bad, let me, let me try to say it a little nicer. He doesn't change his message. He doesn't water down the truth. He still does it respectfully and with love, of course, but he doesn't change his message so that other people will be pleased. He doesn't argue or debate. He doesn't start bringing up old prophecies. Well, see, that's me. He doesn't prove it. He just continues to do what God's called him to do. He also doesn't retaliate. Well, you're just a, no, you call him, they remember what they said, you're just a carpenter, you're just, he doesn't throw it back at them. He doesn't retaliate, he doesn't argue, he doesn't debate. He continues to preach the truth. He continues to be obedient and faithful for God. So that's how we walk through hurt, with obedience, faithfulness, and remembering that we are a child of God. 
Story's not done yet. Some of you are like, ooh, we're getting out early. Nope, not yet. There's a second part to the story. <laughs> Sorry. Second part to the story. If you keep reading verse 7, Jesus shifts from going through it on his own to here's how he wants others to do it alongside of him. Verse seven. So he called his 12 disciples together and began sending them out two by two, giving them authority to cast out evil spirits. He told them to take nothing for their journey except a walking stick, no food, no traveler's bag, no money. He allowed them to wear sandals, but not to take a change of clothes. Wherever you go, he said, stay in the same house until you leave town. But if any of you, if any place refuses to welcome you or listen to you, sounds like what he just experienced, but if any place refuses to welcome you or listen to you, shake its dust from your feet as you leave to show that you have abandoned those people to their fate. Verse 12, so the disciples went out telling everyone they met to repent of their sins and turn to God. And they cast out many demons and healed many sick people, anointing them with oil. A couple of things to pay attention to. What Jesus is doing is he's training his disciples. He says, what I have done, what I've experienced, how I've walked through the hurt, I wanna train you to do the exact same thing, the exact same way. Disciples, be like me, is what he is saying. Let me train you to think and live and talk and act like me. And then we get how he trained his disciples in this story. And notice what he does tell them, how he trains them. He tells them who to go with. He sends them out two, two by two, he sends them out in pairs. He tells them where to go and where to stay. He even tells them how long to stay, so very specific. But then he tells them, here's how, or here's what you need to take and what not to take. And just to comment on that, because it seems a little odd, like you're allowed a walking stick, but no food, no bag, no money. You can wear your sandals, but you can't take a change of clothes. Like, why was Jesus so concerned about what they took with them? Here's the theory, my theory. Two reasons Jesus made a big point about this one. One is so that the disciples would always have to trust in God, no matter what, to remain dependent on God. See, as the disciples would preach and teach and even do some miracles through the power of God, it would be easy for them to kind of get a little bit of a, an ego. And so Jesus was giving them the perfect opportunity to always have to depend on God. You're not gonna have anything except the clothes on your back, your sandals and a walking stick. You're gonna have to rely on God for everything. This is not about you. This is not of you. So you have to trust in God. The other theory behind this is to walk into a town and proclaim the good news. Many people would be skeptical. Well, you're just in this for yourself. What do you really want? How much is this good news going to cost me? But remember, they're not taking any money and they're receiving no money. So they walk into these towns with truly nothing, reliant and dependent on God, and true proof of we have no selfish ambition in this. We have no hidden agenda. We are only here to tell you the good news about Jesus. Jesus wanted them dependent on God, and Jesus didn't want anything to detract or distract from the message of God and the good news. So he tells them where to go, where to stay, who to go with, how long to stay, what to take, what not to take. But you know what Jesus doesn't tell them anything about? how to do the healings, how to deal with a demon. I mean, I'm just saying, if I'm one of the disciples and Jesus is sending me out to do all this stuff, that's great that you're telling me what I can take and what can't take. Let's talk about how to deal with a demon. I feel like I need to know how to do this. Like, you want me to heal people, Jesus? All right, so like, what's the three-step process? What do we do first? How do I, what's the prayer I'm supposed to pray here? You want me to teach and preach about the good news? Well, like, what are the main points? How am I supposed to preach? Jesus doesn't do any of that. He does not train them in the things that we probably think they should be trained in. 
preaching, teaching, dealing with demons and healing people, but Jesus does spend a good amount of time talking about how to deal with hurt. Isn't that interesting? Don't worry about how to teach. Don't worry about how to preach. Don't worry about the miracles. I need to teach you and train you to deal with hurt because that's gonna be the hardest thing. So he tells them, wherever you go, stay in the same house until you leave. But if any place refuses to welcome you or to listen to you, in other words, if you're rejected, if you're insulted, if you're dismissed, if you're written off, if you're doubted, let me teach you how to handle that. And he uses this phrase, he says, shake its dust from your feet. Now let me make sure we're on the same page of what this means. What this does not mean is Jesus said, forget about them, just walk away. This is not a lack of compassion. This is not lacking in care or kindness. Jesus is protecting his disciples. He's protecting them. And here's why I say that. The disciples had such a love for other people and the good news of Jesus that I think they would have stayed even when people refused to believe them. And I think they would have stayed through all the insults. We can relate to this probably. There are some of you in this room that there is somebody you care deeply about. And you're carrying a burden that you should not carry for that person. Because what we wanna do is make people do the right thing, don't we? We wanna be responsible for their obedience and their consistency and their faithfulness. That will do nothing but weigh you down. That is a burden you were not intended to carry. So for Jesus to say, shake its dust from your feet, he's giving permission to the disciples, do what you can, do your very best, give it your all in teaching and preaching the good news, help the people that you can help. But when you experience rejection, do not carry that burden. Do not let it penetrate your heart. That is a burden you are not intended to carry. Somebody needs to hear that. There is a burden that you are carrying that you were not intended to carry. It's okay. You're not forgetting about the person. You're not leaving the person. But you cannot make them live the life you want them to live. So you shake its dust from your, your feet. You keep doing what you can but you do not hold on to a burden you were not intended to carry. That's what Jesus is getting across. He's saying, you basically need to learn to do this like me. That's the whole point of training, right? Here's how you do something. So Jesus is telling his disciples, live like me, follow me, deal with hurt like me, preach the good news like me, help people like me, trust in God like me. Find your identity in God like me. He's training his disciples to follow his example. And the exact same thing is true for us today. Even though Jesus was talking with his disciples, that idea of following in Jesus's example and his footsteps is why we're meeting on a Sunday at 11 o'clock in a really hot room because the AC's not working. By the way, have we talked about our expansion and the whole God's not done yet thing yet? There you go. We're getting there. First Peter... You got to use it any way you can. First Peter chapter two, first Peter chapter two, listen to what we are told in verse 21. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered. So we follow his example. We do what Jesus did, even if it means dealing with hurt, but we deal with hurt in the way that he dealt with it. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. 
He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. So Jesus has given us an example to follow. What's the example? Verse 22, Peter tells us, he never sinned nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted. We witnessed that in our story today, nor threatened revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. We're told we follow his example. And here's what his example looks like. That word example, I do my best to try to teach you guys Greek along the way. That's what the New Testament was written in. And this word here for example, the word there is hoopagramma, hoopagramma. And hoopagramma literally means to write according to another written word. In other words, we would translate that to trace, to trace something. So when Peter says, keep doing good things, even if it means suffering, he's saying follow or trace Jesus's life. And parents, if you've got kid, young kids, uh, if you can remember, my kid just started, my youngest, five, the one that pushed me on the playground, we talked about that. So <laughs> Collins just started kindergarten, and so she's learning to read and write. Like she's not proficient at it. She doesn't exactly know how to do it yet. So what does she do? Well, she has these little workbooks and these little worksheets with a bunch of the letters, all the alphabet. And her job is not to write it. Her job is to trace it. So she is going through and tracing all these letters, learning to write. But there's no way she could ever do it on her own. We, Becky and I have no expectation that she would be able to do this completely on her own. Her teachers don't expect her to be able to do this well on her own yet. So she traces and she follows the lines as they are written out for her. And as you'll see, when we trace, it really doesn't look that great. So my version, decent at best, it's not great. When you compare it to the original, definitely not great. This is the perfect version. And I will never be able to write and trace exactly like this. I can't do that. It's not going to be perfect. But here's what happens though. My version, when I traced, you still know what it says. You can still read that. It's not perfect. There's plenty of mess ups in here, but you can see what it says. Church, I'm convinced we are called to follow the example of Jesus, that we are called to trace the life of Jesus, not just for ourselves, but for the people around us. There are people in your life that don't know Jesus like you know Jesus. And how are they gonna know about Jesus? By looking at your life. And how you live will point to Jesus. And we're not gonna live perfectly, so we trace. We follow his example. How you walk through difficulties will show other people what it's like to have the joy of the Lord, even in difficult times. When you're insulted and when you go through hurt and you respond like Jesus, people are gonna see a humility and a compassion that can only be explained through the life of Jesus. When we live like Jesus, there are people in your life that the best example they're gonna see of Jesus right now is in you. And I pray that people would see a trace of Jesus in each and every one of us. Why do we do that? 
Why do we want people to see Jesus in us? Why do we want people to have a relationship with Jesus? Well, Peter tells us, if we keep reading what we were reading about being following his example, verse 24, we're told, Jesus, he personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. Once you were like sheep who wandered away, but now you have turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your souls. I want people to see a trace of Jesus in me so they can experience the same savior as me. To be able to be freed from our sins, to live a life, an abundant life now, but for all of eternity. So trace your life after Jesus. We're all gonna trace our life after something or someone. We are all following someone's example. Would you make it Jesus? Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you so much for giving us such a great example to follow. That it's not about just living the life that we want, but we're living the life that you have called us to, even in the moments of hurt and difficulty. Jesus, thank you for walking in our shoes, for dealing with the same weaknesses that we deal with regularly. Thank you for showing us how to walk through them. May we find our identity in you, not in what other people say and definitely not what we think ourselves, but may we look to you for who we truly are and may that change our lives. May we live differently, think differently, act differently because of who we are, a child of God. And may we continue to trace our life after you. We will not do it perfectly, but may we follow your example that other people may find a trace of you in us. In Jesus' name, amen.